All right, well, let's dive in. Grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to go into Psalm chapter 1 today. And one of the things, we talk about this a lot, it's substance, but one of the things that is an anchor for us is that we preach God's word, we preach through books of the Bible, but that also brings up in us as we are a people of God endeavoring to glean everything we can from God's word and how to live, is that we realize after a while that we have a difficult relationship with God's words. Um, and and this, is part of, this is part of how that fleshes out for us is that we start believing, we start operating out of the tendency to believe that, that the Bible is simply saying uh, to, to do this. And it, it turns into an instruction manual for our life. And so what we're going to look to this morning and look into this morning is that the Bible is not simply this. It's not do this and God will be happy with you. Talked a little bit about this last week. But what it really is, what God's word is, it's God has done this so that you might be happy in him because your happiness in him gives him glory. So when that's the case, when that's the case, then what is it then, the question for us, what is it about God that should make us happy? That's the natural question for us to ask. Um, and that's what we're going to start next week. We're going to begin a six-week series next week on what God is like. If God is the source and the reason and should be the pursuit of everything about us that will bring us to happiness and to joy, then we probably should find out what God is like and why God is the one thing that leads us to happiness. So today we're going to do a preview, in a sense, of the Psalms, beginning in Psalm 1, which is really kind of the gateway to all the other Psalms, because our series on the attributes of God is going to take us through some of the Psalms. So what we know about God's Word, before we dive in here, is that God's Word is a book about God. What I just said a minute ago, it's not an instruction manual, okay? Some of us have grown up just thinking it's just a, a book of rules. It's a book to tell me how to live. Here's the thing about an instruction manual. An instruction manual tells you about a product, doesn't it? But it doesn't tell you much about the person who designed it. And so look, does the Bible give instruction? Yeah. But although the Bible does give instruction, the instruction is for the sake of knowing the author. It's for the sake of knowing God, the author, and in the words of, of Tim Keller, to love what God commands. So if the Bible were only an instruction manual, this book we hold in our hands were only an instruction manual, two things would happen, okay? And two things do happen when it is merely an instruction manual for you. Number one, you might believe that the ultimate aim for you is to simply become a good product. And a good product as a person means this for us as church people, right? It means... Uh, man, we're going to have good morals, we're going to do the right thing, we're going to be nice, we're going to be honest, we're going to treat people with respect, we're not going to be mean, we're not going to cheat on our taxes most years, right? That's what happens when the Bible turns into instruction. The second thing that can happen is that when the product then, you, me, fails, you end up blaming and hating the designer. You blame and you hate the author. Let me just say this, man. If I ever meet Mr. Ikea, I mean, dude, you're going to have to hold me back from that guy, right? Because I, I don't, I'm not all invested in who created these products that literally almost cause me to despair when I'm trying to put them together, right? But it's because the focus then is on the product, not on the person who created 
the product. So what we understand about all of Scripture is that it's not what you're being built into, it's who you're being built into. Right? So one of the things that happened on, on sabbatical was that, man, I just went after the Psalms. I poured myself into the Psalms. It was the, one of the ways that God used in my life to start reordering some things. It taught me how to pray. It taught me what was okay for me to express to God. It taught me that it's okay to be raw before the Lord. Because guess what? Every time we go before the Lord, he already knows what kind of condition we're in. And so to read through the Psalms over and over again, it just gave me this view. It did something in unraveling my heart and stretching me more Godwardly, if, if I can use that word. And what Psalm 1 does is it provides us with a blueprint for happiness. And it's a blueprint for happiness that was actually designed by God himself that ends up being God himself. Why? Well, because God is always going to lead you to that which gives him most glory. And that which gives God most glory is subsequently the thing that brings us most happiness. And that means that out of all of our choices and the consequences of our choices, it means they only ever lead us to one of two roads. Now, man, uh, my dad had a couple of really great friends growing up. He, uh, he had this dude named Richie. And this guy was, man, you know, child of the 50s and 60s, you know, hell's angel guy, hard drinking, all kinds of drugs, reckless living. Um, again, one of my dad's friends, but man, that was, that was his pattern. That was his path. That was the road he was on. And uh, when you saw Richie, you, I mean, you saw it, man. This guy had been through some rough things. My dad also had another best friend, a guy named Jerry. Jerry was one of his business partners, man. He was just, a, just the greatest guy. You know, I called him Uncle Jerry, right? And uh, clean living. He's a good dad, right? Good morals. Took care of his family. Did things well. Um, man, different consequences for Richie and Jerry. Richie died young. His health failed because of his lifestyle. He died young. Different consequences for Jerry, who's now 80 years old, still alive, has a, has a big basket full of grandkids. Never, never has known Jesus. Both were on a path absent of God. At some point, my dad surrendered his life to the Lord, and you could see this stark contrast between the three of them. Psalm 1 gives us a contrast today between a life lived in pursuit of God versus one that is in actuality in opposition of him. Let's dive right in. Psalm chapter 1, it says this. Blessed is the man. Let's stop right there. I know I just made you turn and put your eyes down on that thing. I'm already stopping on it. But let's just stop right there. What does the word blessed actually mean? For as much as the Bible uses the word blessed, we should probably have a deeper understanding of what that means. Does it, we're not talking hashtag blessed, right? It's not an obligatory follow-up to sneezing. That is not what the word blessed means. Another Bible translation actually says happy. It says, happy is the man or woman. So to be blessed, to be happy, what we understand when we look through all of Scripture is it means to enjoy God's special favor and grace. That's why when Jesus 
preached his sermon, when he preached the Beatitudes, when he said, blessed is the man who, and he listed all these different things, that's what he was essentially saying. He was saying, happy is the man who follows these particular commands of the Lord because they will be in God's favor and grace. So the psalmist is is reaching right here into the depths of what will fulfill a person's innermost desire to be happy, experience satisfaction, and find meaning in life. Like, I like all those things that I just said. I want all those things. Because we have a God-ordained desire to be happy. Happiness isn't a bad word for the Christian, right? We automatically choose things. We push things. We fall back into things. We collapse into the things that we believe are making us most happy. And here's here's another thing we need to understand about that. You are not most holy when you're most miserable, There's nothing in scripture that talks about that, ever. But you will be most miserable when you're pursuing anything other than God for your ultimate happiness. Here's an example of that, cake, all right? I was having a talk with Jeffrey Chandler about this yesterday. I I love cake. Um, Now, there is this woman, I think I've told this story before, but here, here it goes. There is this woman, I forget her name, she delivers me a chocolate cake. She lives in Ashland every, every time I have a birthday, which is once a year. I'm just giving you guys some education now. It's been a while since we've been together. Um, and she's this amazing woman. And, and the reason why she's so amazing is not because I know her that well, but because her cake is so amazing. Um, and it's just chocolate cake. I'm not even a chocolate guy, and I love this cake. If I had to pick one cake to eat for the rest of my life, it's this one. And I, truthfully, I'm not that picky, if I'm being honest. So one year, though, she brought me the cake, and I had a cavity on the left side of my mouth, um, which made my cake-eating experience less than happy, less than perfect. Now, here's the thing, right? It's not the cake's fault. It's not the cake's fault that I had a cavity. It's it's the cavity, and and I can't even blame the, the cavity, right? It's my refusal to pursue broccoli flossing and dentistry like I should. That's what it is, which would have allowed me to rightly enjoy the most delightful baked good ever created, which was this chocolate cake, right? So this is what he's saying when he said, blessed is the man or the woman. The man or woman who enjoys God's favor and grace in their lives is the one who is actively loving, pursuing, and we're going to see this in a minute, meditating on God's word, which is how God defines a righteous person. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack three observations from the text as we carry on. Number one, what righteous people pull back from. Number two, what righteous people pursue. And then three, what is the result for righteous people who do these things? So let's continue on in in chapter, uh, chapter one, verse one. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's interesting that the psalmist starts by telling us who and what the righteous man avoids. He starts on the negative. I mean, he starts on the positive saying, blessed is the man. But he kind of goes negative with it saying, these are the things that the righteous man needs to pull back from so that he finds himself under the favor and grace of God. These are the things the righteous man avoids. Because here's the thing, a person's character is determined and shaped by both what he does and what he does not do. So in your Christian life, that's going to be what shapes your character, the things that you do and pursue and the things that you don't do and don't pursue. Godly character 
will not, the psalmist says, be formed in those who keep company. And let's just say it more this way, adopt the lifestyle of those whose life pursuits don't please God. And what the psalmist does, he gives us a progression of how ungodliness unfolds in a person's life. We get three descriptions here in verse one. Number one, he calls them, uh, he calls them wicked. He says the counsel of the wicked. So blessed is the man who doesn't walk with the wicked. What do we mean when we say wicked? Well, we're talking about people who have chosen to reject God's law to follow their own. Then he says, nor stands in the way of sinners. Well, what does he mean by sinners? He means people who are marked by an open rebellion against God. They're not interested in loving God or loving the things that God commands. And then he says at the end of verse 1, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Well, we don't really use the word scoffer much these days. What does scoffer mean? Well, it's really talking about people whose hearts become so hardened that they become desensitized to the things of God. And not only desensitized, but they mock the things of God. They openly mock God's law. They say things like, how can you believe that? That's absurd that you would be somebody that would put yourself in the company of people who are praying to a God that we find nowhere in science. That's something we might hear today, right? Like, what are you doing? Like, isn't that archaic? Like, what is this worship gathering thing you guys do? They mock what it is we do as we worship God. So blessed is the man who doesn't live under the influence and in the presence of those, it says, who don't live under the influence and presence of God. Now, let's just clear this up a little bit, all right? Because this is not talking about removing ourselves from the world and holding up in an old nuclear bomb shelter like my grandpa built back in the 1960s. True story. Right? That's what was going on back then. I was not alive in the 60s. All right? Our call, on the other hand, is Philippians 2.15. It says this. This is Paul writing. He says, That we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among those whom we shine as light in the world. So what we're not called to do is walk, stand, or sit like those who live in blatant disobedience to God. We're called to be among them, but we're not called to be like them, which is how we love them like Jesus. But that's the call. Ephesians warns us. The book of Ephesians warns us that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their own minds, but rather imitate God by walking in love. That is what righteous people pull back from. Okay? Right there, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. So what then do righteous people pursue? Well, let's read verse 2. It says it. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What the psalmist is saying here is that righteous people, what they do is they delight. They delight in God's law. They meditate on it always. The marked contrast between the wicked and the righteous is delight. It's finding joy. It's finding happiness. It's finding pleasure in God. That's a marked contrast, isn't it? Righteous people love God. And not only that, they love the words of God and they find great happiness in knowing, obeying, and feeding on the words they know speak of the favor and grace of God that already rests upon them. They meditate on Scripture, it says. They fix their thoughts 
on God. They direct their affections to, to him. They express their gratefulness for him throughout the hours of the day and night. You know what it means to do that? It means to do in your week everything that we do on Sunday morning. Everything I just said is what we attempt to do on a Sunday morning. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, we remember that this was always God's plan for his people. When we go back to the book of Joshua, this was the guy that came after Moses. Moses was just this giant, you know, just this massive leader in the, in the history of Israel. God called Moses to leave the people of Israel out of Egypt after Moses died. Joshua, Josh was the heir apparent. And so when Josh first faced God, this is what one of the things God uh, says to him in, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, when he's instructing Joshua which way he should go with the people and how he should lead them. He says this, this book of the law, the Bible, his word is what he meant, shall not depart from your mouth, Joshua, but you shall meditate on it day and night, he said, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Listen, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So what that shows us is the godly person is a person whose mind is on God and whose actions reflect that godly-mindedness. Theologian from about 40 or 50 years ago, a guy named A.W. Tozer. Has anybody heard of Tozer? Maybe some of you have. This is what he said. He made this quote. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I mean, Toz, Really? The most important thing about us? Yeah, the most important thing about us. That's what Psalm 1 is telling us. That's what it's trying to tell us here. Some of you will say right now, I do not know how to do that, Ronnie. What you're describing sounds strange. I don't know how to do that. Actually, let me disagree with what I just assumed you would say to me and say you actually do and you're already doing it because this is why. Because we all have a person, place, thing, or idea that our mind is absorbed with. Right now, your mind is absorbed with something. Maybe you would like your mind to be absorbed with something, but you can't because I'm talking so loud. I don't know. But your mind is absorbed with something. So do a mental survey of that right now. What is the person, what is the place, what is the thing or idea that your mind constantly snaps back to, defaults to all the time. And then ask yourself, after you've located what that is, if you can be honest, ask yourself why that is. Why do I go back to that? Why is my mind preoccupied with that? What you'll find is that it's simply what you're feeding your mind with most. Our hearts work up an appetite for whatever we inject through our minds. And we know this because of the things we inject through our mouth. It's not much different. When I'm not eating healthy food, the only thing I think about in desire eating is, is junk food. Now, how many of you guys have seen that documentary, Supersize Me? Has anybody seen that? It's a few years old by now, nine of you, okay. Um, but in this documentary, there's this crazy dude that put it together, a guy named Morgan Spurlock. He's a, he's a documentary film you know, maker. He decided to explore the consequences of eating nothing more than McDonald's for an entire month for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Only food that's coming into this dude's mouth is McDonald's, all right? Um, so he gets a couple of days into this with nothing but McDonald's. Some of you guys are like, that described me this week. 
Um, but this dude gets a couple of days into it and he gets sick. Like he like gets sick, sick, right? Um, but, but he sticks to it because, you know, he's filming his documentary. After a week, this is what was interesting. He started to crave Big Macs and Quarter Pounders. And not only that, but he said, like, I can't wait. It's like I just had the big, like, big breakfast. And it's like I'm three hours away from noon before I can get that Quarter Pounder. And I'm pumped. Like, I can't wait to get there, right? Um, before the month was even up, though, he visited his doctor. And the doc told him he needed to stop because his health was failing. Failing? After three weeks of McDonald's? I mean, I really need to take restock of my diet right now, right? Um, again, this is not a rant against Mickey D's. Enjoy. All right, enjoy. Um, but the Bible is, is simple in what it commands us because it's not really going after the diet of our stomach. It's going after the diet of our hearts. Okay, and that's where Psalm 1 is leading us to. What is the diet of our hearts? So a man or woman who pursues happiness by pursuing God, what do they do? Well, they do this by feeding on God's word and then growing in their desire and intentionality and reflecting and applying their life on the instruction of those words. I mean, all of you do that with many other things in your life. Here's an example of that, man. If you sit around... And I have friends who are these people. If you sit around with Seinfeld fanatics, you know, dudes that have watched every episode of Seinfeld 219 times. I, I like the show. I just, like, I've never gotten that into it. I think it's funny. I'm like, I don't know why I'm, like, qualifying myself right now. Um, but if you sit around with Seinfeld fanatics, man, they'll be able to tell you everything about the, the show to an annoying fault, right? Favorite episodes, one-liners, cameo appearances, what Jerry's doing with his life now, which is comedians and cars with coffee, in case you want to know. Um, why do they do that? Why do they want to tell you so much about Seinfeld, a show that they have nothing to do with but watch and view and enjoy? Because they delight. They delight in Seinfeld. They meditate on Seinfeld episodes. That's why they become acquainted and not just acquainted, man. These brothers and sisters become intimately acquainted with Seinfeld. That's the difference right there between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous find their delight. They get intimately acquainted with God and his word. And again, just to qualify, becoming acquainted with Seinfeld is not a mark of wickedness. It's not, okay? But there are consequences, and this is what the psalm is telling us. There are consequences to our affections. So then what is the result then? What is the result of righteous people who pull back from sin and pursue God? Well, it says this. Let's read verse 3. He is like a tree, it says, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. So there's four words here that describes the person who pulls back from sin and pursues God. They're planted, they're well-watered, they're fruitful, they will not dry out. What does planted mean? Well, it means that they have deep roots and rich soil. It means that they are immovable. They're in, they're deep, they're sturdy. Well, what does well-watered mean? Well, well-watered gives us this picture of being replenished, seeing leaves, right, that are, that are vibrant and bursting with color. I know, we're gonna get there. Just give it a minute, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close in Ohio and in Ashland. We're going to see those leaves that become vibrant and bursting with green someday. It also says it's fruitful. And what we know about a fruitful tree is that a fruitful tree is a healthy tree. It's producing what it's meant to produce, right? 
And it says it will not dry out. It will not wither. It will not be destroyed even when there are harsh climates. So those trees that you've planted, those fruit trees that are in your yard that are deeply rooted, man, whenever the weather comes back, um, they're going to be fruitful again. They're so deeply rooted that the harsh climates and these destructive seasons that we are, that we are experiencing, they're going to come upon it, but the tree is going to be okay. So the characteristic now of a righteous man or woman or child is of one who is fed well, bears good fruit, and doesn't shrivel up and die. This kind of man or woman is something to behold. And what is beheld in them is what? Is God. What you behold in somebody who is producing good fruit is actually God himself. They're a reflection of the qualities of God. Look at the imagery. A tree is something big. It's something beautiful. It's something that causes people to look at it in wonder. It's something for people to eat from. It's something for people to be shaded by and to be just greatly benefited by. Not only that, but it will remain standing through all the seasons because it prospers It perseveres. It's not a fake plastic tree. It shows signs that it's endured and weathered some storms. So if that is true, what is the result of those then who don't pursue God? Who choose to find their happiness in something other than God? Let's read verse 4. It says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They are not like weighty, deeply rooted, fruitful trees, but they're like chaff. Chaff being like bits of hay or, or uh, straw. They're actually like a, a good picture for this is they're like tumbleweeds, right? Which are just these tangled, dried out, brittle plants that crack and they crumble at the touch. Not only that, they're prickly. They hurt at the touch. There's no substance to them. They have no roots. There's nothing to anchor them. So the wind carries them wherever they blow. Now, I grew up in, in the deserts of California. A common sight out there is watching drifting tumbleweeds. You see this stuff all the time. A windstorm breaks, and I don't know where they come from, right? But you see all these tumbleweeds just kind of going. It's like everything you've ever seen in your Western, in your favorite Western, like that, that's what happens. It's really true. Um, here's the thing about tumbleweeds. They're not much to behold. They're not attached to anything. They're dead and uprooted. Now, somebody, right, Somebody, if they're being snarky, could come up and make the case and say, hey, tumbleweed hater, uh, a tumbleweed is actually free to experience the world, whereas a planted tree lacks freedom. So what do you think about tumbleweeds now, smart guy? Maybe I'd rather be a tumbleweed, but here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that it's just the opposite. That's just the opposite. The planted and rooted tree has the freedom to be what it was meant, what it was created, what it was planted to be, which is this beautiful, shady, fruit-bearing creation that benefits others and speaks well of its gardener. While a lifeless, dead tumbleweed has no choice but to go where the randomness of the wind carries it. It's dead and untended. And so what we see here is that it's the same for those who pursue happiness by virtue of a path of unrighteousness. 
by not loving the things of God and the God who commands the things he does. Now, depending on what we take our delight in, man, we can feel like Christianity is so restrictive, huh? We can feel like it's so narrow. So then we enjoy what appears to be the wider, the more generous, less restrictive, more attractive path. The Bible talks about this from an experiential standpoint. In Proverbs chapter 14, it says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, its way is death. How many of you enjoy Cedar Point? I mean, you guys are like Cedar Point fanatic. I mean, it's crazy. Cedar Point is epic. What is like the greatest roller coaster park in the world? Um, here's the thing about roller coasters. They're exciting for a time, unless you're like me and you can't go on them anymore because then you're sick for a long time, okay? But they're, excite- they're still exciting. They're exciting for a time because the wind is in your face. You get the speed of the coaster. It feels exhilarating. It gives you this euphoric sense of freedom, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, like, literally, like not you, Leo DiCaprio. I'm on top of the world. And if this thing derails, we're all going to know it, right? That's a whole other thing. But after a while, you realize you're not going anywhere, right? All it's doing is carrying you through a series of predetermined loops, drops, and turns. And every time you get back on, dude, it's the same ride. I don't know if you know this, but it doesn't change, right? I mean, when you're on a coaster, it is totally in control of your life. It's taking you where it's going. If you ever want to get home, you have one choice. You got to get off the coaster, preferably when it stops, right? So Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter 6. He says, but what fruit you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit were you getting from it? He says, for the end of those things, this pursuit of unrighteousness, is death. But now that you've been set free from sin, he says, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in the end, eternal life. So in the end, the fate of the unrighteous is this, chapter 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The wicked will not be standing on judgment day, but they will be pronounced guilty. Nor will they be found in the congregation of God's people. They will be driven away, unable to benefit from the blessings of being secure in God's favor, and happy in God's presence. The psalmist is saying, here are the two fates. Here are the two fates. There is not a third. So let's finish by by unpacking those for just a minute. The two fates. There's two. We see them here. They're very clear. Number one is that the righteous prosper. And number two, the wicked perish. The righteous prosper. How do they prosper? They continue to grow. They continue to grow in season and out of season. They have good soil to grow deep roots. Doesn't mean they get to avoid winter. I know. It doesn't mean they get to avoid winter, but it means they're planted in such good soil that they will endure the elements and then eventually produce fruit in their season. They won't shrivel up. They won't die when the heat or the cold comes upon them. Man, they persevere. And you guys have had to endure a long winter. It's been long, man. 
But this is Ashland. It's not Narnia under the rule of the White Witch, right? Always winter, never Christmas. Like, it, it, I, it's hard to believe, it, but it's going to come. The season is going to come. We are going to experience the sun. We are going to experience our trees blossoming again. The way of the righteous ends well, right? It ends well. Don't forget that. If your faith is in Jesus and his righteousness alone, the end of your road in this life is the first step in the next that receives its light from God's son. This changes things for us. It changes how we look at everything that we do and everything that happens to us if we follow the way that God has given us as people who have been righteous in God's sight. This changes how we look at tragedy. Some of you guys have tragedy. There is tragedy in your life. There will be tragedy in all of our lives. This changes how we pursue success. We start redefining and reordering success. It's not just accumulation. Because we see how quickly that can disappear. Righteous people live like people who will never stop living because we know we have eternity in Christ. You know, nobody's sad when they're traveling down the highway to Hilton Head or Disney World, unless you have like six kids in the car, sorry. (laughs) Nobody's sad though. That's because you're on a road that leads to a desirable destination, right? For the Christian, an eternity with Jesus makes our troubles on earth momentary, like the Apostle Paul mentioned, because they're leading us to a glorious end. You know what the way of the righteous really is? It's Jesus. He tells us in John 14, 6, he says, it's a famous verse, I am the way. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to God except through me. Do the paths of your life lead to Jesus and then from Jesus to everything else? That's a happy and a prosperous pursuit. So the righteous prosper. And then finally, the wicked, though, the wicked perish. They have no branches or roots or weight. They are not connected. They are like a tumbleweed. You see them for a minute and they vanish. They don't provide fruit or leaves or branches. They don't provide nourishment for people. When the wind comes, they aren't rooted, they aren't anchored, but they are carried away into oblivion. Now look, if I took a poll right now, none of you would say you want to be like chaff in the wind. You'd all say, no, 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 I want to be like this fruit-bearing tree. Nobody looks at the imagery of a tumbleweed, unless you're a cowboy maybe, and wants their life to resemble that. Here's the problem, okay? When we say the wicked perish, right, we see that, we see that word wicked, When we say the wicked perish, the problem is that few of us think we're wicked. We define wickedness as someone who commits horrible, heinous sins or crimes. Right? We go Hitler. We think of a terrorist. We think of a serial killer. We think of an abuser. What's interesting, now track with me here, the very end, I know. What's interesting about Psalm 1 is that it does not give us a list of sins that qualify as wickedness. It simply describes wicked people as those who don't love and meditate on God's law, his word. Now, what does that do? Well, 
I'm not brilliant, but that levels the playing field, doesn't it? We don't look over there and go, it's all of those horrible people and their sins. Because what God calls wickedness and unrighteousness is actually self-righteousness. And the fruit of self-righteousness is the refusal of any person to admit they're a sinner in need of righteousness. Unrighteous people live like people who are dying because they believe this world is their last outpost for pleasure. Now, let me answer the defense that might rise up in your heart. Some of you will say, I still don't see how this applies to me. How can you call people wicked? Well, it, it says it right there. Those who don't love God's law, which ultimately is Jesus, which is the word made flesh, like Scott pointed out to us in our liturgy, it doesn't matter what I call you or what you call you. It only matters whether God calls you righteous. That's all that matters. The problem is we have no righteousness apart from the word made flesh, from the law made flesh, which is Jesus Christ. Because we are then known by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the one who perished for our wickedness and then rose from the grave so that we could become righteous before God and never perish. That's what it means to be known by God. That's what he means when it says here in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Because the only thing God knows and will know about you or me is that his son is perfectly righteous. So he won't be familiar with you unless you know his son and have been redeemed by his righteousness. So the blueprint for happiness here is God himself, who gave himself for our happiness through Jesus Christ. Only in him will you stand firm. Stand firm. Only in him will you stand firm in, in the storms of life. Only in him will you bear any fruit that is beautiful and acceptable to God. Only in him will you persevere through the harsh climates because God will know you and tend to you because he is the great and the gracious gardener of our souls. We don't earn any of this. He gives it to us as a gift. So today we look down at a passage like this and we bow before God. And we say, God, I need the righteousness of Christ. I need to be like this tree described in the Psalms. I need to take stock of those things that I pursue that are counterfeits, that have caused me so much grief, that right now are causing me so much anxiety, that are causing me worry, that are gripping my soul, that are owning me, that are enslaving me. And instead, pursue the way of the righteous, which is found only in God's word through the blood of Christ. And guess what? God will preserve you through all of those harsh climates and seasons that you and I will inevitably go through. Because prospering in the eyes of God is being with God's son for all eternity. That's what we mean when we say prosper. We have a hope 
of what is to come. And that keeps us. It keeps us going in a present circumstance that may be anything but that. You guys hear me? Let's pray. God, show us once again, renew in our minds. Give us a fresh taste of Christ and his righteousness, which is our way, which is our truth, and which is our life, and which is how we know you, which is how we face these seasons of life that otherwise will be crushing and exhausting. God, remind us of your grace now as we come to the table and we're reminded of how we are made righteous. Lord, give us fresh hearts to receive this truth again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the blessings that we enjoy as a church, and we're only a church if we are a a people who have been saved by Christ's righteousness and then follow after the things that God has given us. But one of the blessings we enjoy is that we get to eat and commune with the creator of the universe. That's why the Bible isn't merely instruction for good living. The words it contains are meant to bring us face to face and heart to heart with God, the author, who punished Christ. Instead of us, he punished his son for our sin so that we could stand before him. We would be able to stand in the judgment day and be known by him. And so Jesus commanded his church to take communion and to do it often, to remember his death and rejoice that because of his death, we now have a future with God rather than a fate without him. Because of his death, we will be like trees planted in streams of living water that will yield fruit in its season. Because of Christ's death, we will now be part of a righteous congregation who is known by God. And so that is why what we're about to do Communion, which is why it's something specifically given to those who have repented of their sins, are turning from their sins, and have received the grace and mercy that Christ made available on the cross. So, if this is not you, we would ask that you would abstain this morning, but I would encourage you to receive this gift of salvation that Christ died to give you so that you can be counted as righteous and receive this and these blessings that come when men and women pursue their happiness in God. So I'm going to invite the ushers up. If any of you need to pause, yeah, come on up. If any of you need to pray and repent, take a few minutes. You don't got to rush. We're not in a rush. Take a few minutes to do that before you receive the bread and cup. And if you need to make amends with a brother or a sister, which is what we're commanded to do in Scripture, um, don't let the sun go down today before you reach out and you attempt to do that and ask forgiveness and try to find resolve and make amends. So I'm going to pray, and then we're, we're going to receive. God, we thank you for the gift of life that is Christ, who is the bread of life, whose blood was shed so that we might not have to bear your wrath. That is the truth, and that is glorious. Thank you that we can be free men and women who pursue you for the depths of our happiness. Let us be reminded now as we find all of our happiness found in your broken body and in your shed blood, that we would be reminded that 
all of our life, it comes from that moment. And we receive it now as a way to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to be equipped to carry on in this truth, even though we may be weak and tired and fragile today. Lord, strengthen us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.